the golden calf. So, um, if I was a better teacher, I would have insisted, insisted, that um, for homework, you read the Torah section on this, because it's a little bit long for us to kind of read out. I, w- I, would, I think it would take us too long to read out loud for a while. So, can I, can I ask that you take three or four minutes and just read it? We did this once before. Um, even if you just can scan it, if, if that's not enough time. But page 185 to 187, it's 28 verses this section. Um, we are probably not going to focus on all of it, but I'd like you to read them and then make note of what you think is interesting to yourself, mentally or physically. Go. So the recorder actually is counting the minutes. So I gave you three minutes. So I hope that's enough. For those who are like, wow, that was a long time. That's how long three minutes feels. If that wasn't enough time, then uh, sorry. I'm trying to balance. Um, Before I guide you, does anybody want to guide us to any particular verse and share anything that they noticed, had questions about, thought was interesting, confusing, objectionable? Yeah. 
Yeah, a, a few curious things to me. Um, three in particular. One, Moses has this conversation with God. He's aware of what's going on, at least in general terms. He comes down the mountain with God's tablets that explicitly states God inscribed. And then he's surprised and throws the tablets to the ground. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever read this carefully before mm-hmm. um, and sort of noticed that sequence of events. Yep. But it, um, it it's strange, curious, maybe is a better word, word uh, that Moses would be so surprised at this point, enough to throw down God's inscription of the tablets. One, two. So just to pause for a second after one, that is a classic rabbinic question. Why did Moses act surprised? And the parallel, the second part is, how in God's name could he have thrown God's tablets to the ground? Isn't that disrespectful? I mean, would you do that? Um, so that's good. And then the second sort of sequence is the, the final few verses. He's clearly upset with Aaron. Um, he, he, he sort of is quite pointed in his blame of Aaron to let this happen and then there's a shift very quickly to who is with God and some Levites volunteer that they are um, although it's not clear, maybe there's gaps in the story as to exactly how they felt previously but we assume their leader, Aaron led them uh, to this point but suddenly they sort of say oh, I'm back with you good, now go out and kill a bunch of people it, the, the whole thing strikes me as somewhat capricious in terms of assigning blame or responsibility and uh, selective punishment, if you will. Great. So there is a question of what is Aaron's role in all of this, what blame should be assigned to him, and how God and Moses end up assigning blame in the end to whomever and who these people who fell are um, and why did they have to fall, <laughs> as, the, as the text puts it. So that's a good one. Yeah, Renee? The, the part that I don't, excuse me, I don't have to mention voice. That's um, okay. Moses is this wonderful advocate for his people and talks about how could you do this to them? How could you punish them after you brought them out of Egypt? And he's this wonderful advocate. And then he says, okay, let's kill 3,000 of them. I, I don't get, I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what it is. Okay, so you see a, um, a disconnect between the Moses who's arguing with God on the mountain and the Moses who then comes down and handles the, I don't know what you want to call what's going on, what's going on in the way that he does, which results in the death of uh, these several thousand people. Great. Um, the first thing is I'm kind of surprised that Aaron uh, would have right away said yeah bring me all your stuff and let's let's make a let's make an idol and mm-hmm. if he really is you know kind of wonder what happened to his <coughs> belief or allegiance or, or faith if you will great um, but the other thing to touch on what Jay said and, and we kind of brought this up a couple weeks ago is um, not only it's surprising that Moses was surprised but it's kind of funny a little bit that God is surprised when after all um we assume he knows what's what's about to happen anyway. So it mm-hmm. seems like this whole thing sort of had to play out in this way in order uh, in order for the end result to happen. And, and it's almost as if uh, I, I'm wondering if it's ever been. It's almost as if God sort of 
needed it to happen in this way, or, or we both sort of needed this to happen in this way in order to, in order to get that gift and in order to have that gift be as, uh, as powerful as it is or as meaningful as it is. Right, so um, that's a great general question about events in the Torah and God's role. Um, by making God a character in a narrative, yeah. it's almost impossible to... Um, let me say it in the positive. Most of Judaism and Jewish uh, tradition understands that God is more than just like a superhuman, like a Greek God, right? Not just a third-party being with big powers. But when you place God as a character in a narrative, it's hard not to make God seem that way, right? God becomes an actor in a story um, as opposed to perhaps the power that links the universe or larger conceptions of what God might be, uh, the spirit inside of each of us. Those things are not present when you're talking about a God who's acting inside the story. And so the question then becomes when God seems surprised or acts angry, you know, or responds, how do we view that, right? You know, lots of biblical scholars will just say, yeah, well, that's, that's the human being's characterization of what it felt like to be in interaction with God in these stories. God felt, like, angry, and this is, this is what it, the human perception. Some will say God portrayed God's self that way for a particular reason. Maybe that fits more in with the it had to happen this way. God acted his part because he's the master playwright. He wrote himself into the story in a particular way for a particular reason. Sometimes it's obvious why, and sometimes it's a big mystery. Um, and we can try to figure out what that mystery is, but in the end we do have to admit we don't always know the reasons why God does this or why God does that. Um, and then another way of perhaps looking at it is Maimonides, which Maimonides, a little bit like the one I just said, but he says it is definitely 1,000% always a metaphor. God does never get angry. God is not an actor in the story. Um, God doesn't get jealous. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't think. Right? Um, all those are ways of trying to get a grip on our history and what happened to our people. And God does project God's self into the world. And the only way that we humans can even talk about it is by using anthropomorphic terms, like human terms. But that is not actually God. That is a way that we human beings have constructed to speak about God. But never think that God ever gets angry. He, Maimonides would basically think that you have violated one of the key ten. He would think that you're in the category of perhaps the, the golden calfers, that you're doing idolatry. Um, he's very, very strict on that stuff. Um, that, that's part of his philosophy and theology, is that he believes also that the way that we connect to God is by what's, what's different in his mind. This is what he does, logic. What's different between us and a cow? Well, certain biological things, but mostly our brains, right? Or between us and, a, if you want to say, opposable thumb, or is that how you say it? Um, so that, what's the difference between us and an ape? Our brains, Right? So he's saying, that's the God. That's the God part. Divine image. Divine image we, means we have a brain. And so we connect to God through our brains. And we have to be smart, right? And we have to think about things intellectually. And that's how we're going to understand the Torah. Um, and he definitely doesn't want you to be fooled into thinking that God is really just some character in a story who gets angry like human beings do. That's not God. That's just how we talk about God.
for to teach a lesson. So that's a that's a larger issue inside the inside of it. Um, and did this all have to happen this way or not? Can I digress for a minute? Would you mind? So this, I just want to relate this to this week's Torah portion, right? Just for a second. This is the Jacob and Esau story. Remember, Jacob blackmails Esau to get, you know, I'm so hungry. Uh, he sees him have stew, and Jacob says, well, I'll give you some stew as long as you give me the birthright. Nice guy, right? So and Esau says, fine, uh, what's my birthright if I'm going to die? Which he's not going to die, but he, but he takes the stew. And then in the end of the day, he dresses up like Esau to get the birthright, right, the blessing at the end, and he pretends he lies to his father and so on and so forth. What happens in the end? Well, you could look at it in the positive. What happens? He gets the birthright, right? He gets the blessing. But what really happens in the end? He's kicked out of the house because his brother wants to kill him, and he means it. And what happens is now he's all alone outside the land of Israel. He may theoretically have the blessing and theoretically the birthright, but who's the one who's at home with mom and dad on the ranch? Esau, right? So he's got his theoretical birthright and his theoretical blessing, and he's all by himself leaving the land of Israel and leaving this, the thing that he's supposed to be inheriting. Um, so the question is, is, did this have to happen this way? Right? Did this need to happen and eventually Jacob makes his return? Did he need to go through all of that exactly in that way? And there's a debate about that. Right? You could say yes and that's blah, blah. Or you could say, which I always like, no. It didn't have to happen this way. In the beginning of the story, Rebecca says, I'm having a tough childbirth. There's something going on in there. God tells her, you have two nations in your womb. And guess what? They're going to they're gonna wrestle with each other. And guess what? The younger is going to be the dominant one. The older is going to serve the younger. So right up from the beginning, the prophecy is told. We know what the end of the story is. The question that we might be able to control is, how do we get to the end of the story? There's a midrash that says, there are, there are six organs in our body. There's more than six. They're just saying that. Um, that three which we can't control and three which we can. Our nose, our ears, and our mouth, we cannot control. Our nose, our eyes, and our ears, we can't control. Because we, we see things and we can't help it. We smell things that we don't always want to smell. We hear things that we don't always want to hear. What we can control is our mouth, our hands, and our feet. Right? We can choose how we respond to things. We can choose where we go and what we do with things. Um, so I always said, what if Jacob had just been honest about everything and been nice, right? Could he have managed to get the birthright and not have been kicked out of the house and do all those things? Maybe. Um, so that's the open question. Did this have to happen this way? I don't know. Um, but the Torah posits free will. And... Um, Theoretically, no, it did not have to happen this way. But it's a it's a good open question. Anyway, Barry. After Jay's comment with respect to what he said about Moses, I wonder when you kind of take down Moses' behavior and reaction, is it that he was so enraged with what was going on that he loses all sight of the divinity of the scroll and all and the tablets? Mm. Or is he thinking that, you know, he's got such a relationship with God that God would forgive him if he does this and he's trying to express something to the people because he's so mad. You know, which is it? You know, why does it happen? It's a great question. Um, you've helped me decide. There's definitely one of the sources that I want to get to now because there's been several comments on that. Um, so um, I'll remind myself which the number is, but um, we'll definitely get to a source that talks about Moses and throwing down the tablets. And you can see if you like, you know, what that particular source perspective on it. Any, any other things you want to raise, Ben, and then Perry? Yeah. So one thing that I noticed at the beginning, um, 
verse 4, it says that he took them, made it, and he, he cast in a mole and made him into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, This is, you know, this is your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then later, when he's explaining to Moses what had happened, he threw the gold in and the calf came out. Yes, very good catch, yeah. right? So, so early, go ahead. early he said, you know, it was a very active process of making the, the calf. Later, it's when he's trying to explain it to his brother, his marriage, yeah, it just kind of happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's definitely true. So you have, I don't. I'll I'll use literary terms for a second. You have the third person or narrator version of the story, right? It's just the Torah talking, right? And then you have the quotation from Aaron, which comes later when he's describing to his brother what happened. He's like, I don't know, but gold kind of went in and out popped the calf, right? So, and you can, and it's interesting, there is a source, but we probably won't look at it, so I'll just tell you what it is now. Uh, it basically talks about, you could either look at it to Aaron's detriment, like comedically, like, come on, man. You know, he's trying to get away with it. He's trying to just say, say about himself, I didn't really have anything to do with it. It just kind of happened. And, you know, we're all reading that and thinking, that's not what happened. I mean, how did it just happen like that? There's another way of reading it, which, you know, this, one of these ancient Near Eastern scholars that Milton brought, you know, a source from, he said that actually, not that he's advocating that that did or didn't happen, but the concept of the God making himself is actually existence in ancient Near Eastern literature, <laughs> that there was a belief, right, that the gods kind of made themselves. Um, and that the idol was their um, physical incarnate form. Of course, there was more to the god than the idol itself, but the, the idol was kind of created, in essence, by the god themselves. So the, the person making the idol was, was taking the material, but then something magical happens that the god made themselves. And maybe this is an echo of that, that he's basically saying, you know, I thought I was just fooling them by making like an idol. I didn't really know it was going to come to life, you know, and it came to life. Um, I don't know if you buy that. But. Well, I mean, isn't there's a commentary that takes the line that, that the people never thought this was God, that it wasn't an idol, it was a replacement for Moses. Yes. That they say, you know, right? And that is some of the first stuff that I want to look at, yes. which is analyzing exactly what the sin was. Um, is it really the traditional sin that a lot of people think of it as, as idolatry? Um, and if it, if it is, is it straight up that they were worshiping an idol? Um, or is there something more to it? Or perhaps did they never commit the sin of idolatry at all, um, but they just committed the sin of unfaithfulness, um, which, you know, just that God had told them a bunch of things and they just kind of gave up on it. Um, did you touch on that last week? We did. Yeah, we talked uh, a little bit about it, and yeah. because we've been dealing with the chronology, right. you know, of where the golden calf falls in the story, and we're reading the way the verses fall. So we've done everything that we did, and now is the golden calf story. Remember, there are certain positing that this is not actually the order of everything, that some of the verses we read last time actually came, you know, way before. Anyway. Just think for what it's worth. It's interesting, though, of all the 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 the, the, Durim, the the first commandment itself was don't make a molten image. Mm-hmm. And this is the first commandment is, is violated by the molten image of the calf. Which is, of, 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 I mean, it, you put your first foot forward. I mean, there's it, a violation. 
secondly, it seems like most of, this is the second time that um, one of our patriarchs, you know, argued with God and, and prevailed. Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of interesting that, you know, that especially it was Moses, one who kind of portrayed himself as not strong at speech. And this is an incredible argument to advocate. <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, if you don't, um, you know, if, if you destroy the people, you know, the Egyptians are going to have to, you know, be, have, have this claim to say that, you know, you let, you know, you led them down this path only to kill them, which was you know, an interesting piece of advocacy. Yes. Um, sorry. Right. Presumed, well, about the second half of your point, it's clear that even though Moses presented himself as poor of speech, yeah. that when he said that, that was either a way to try to get out of his original uh, job, or he lacked confidence at the time, because the story bears out that he makes lots of pretty articulate speeches, um, both to the people and to God, and, and uh, frankly, he dealt with Pharaoh too, so... Um, and uh, so I'm not sure that objectively we can say that he really does have his trouble with speaking, um, um, although it's perhaps he thought he did, right? Maybe he thought he wasn't good at it, and then he discovered that he was. Um, but to your, and then I'll get to Rod, to your other point, you know, um, well, you know what, I'm going to let your first point stand, and then I want to see, see what the sources say and see if they interact with what you're saying. Go ahead. About his advocacy role. Is, uh, you, know, you read this, this section, and Aaron comes off pretty bad. Right. And uh, but the uh, Aaron supporters and the uh, the sources, they all come and defend Aaron. They say, "Well, Aaron, you know, he told them to, to give give me your goal," and thinking they'll never do this. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, they give him the goal. And, uh, you know, he was stalling, stalling. Right, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that if we want to. Um, well, that's part of the question. The sources are divided. And one of the reasons, obviously, some people just like to rush to defend the biblical characters, right? They don't like the idea of having Aaron as weak in this way. Um, but the other thing that they notice that gives credence to the Aaron defenders is what? Did he get punished for this? No. No. I mean, so there's... There is a little bit of a question about he doesn't even get really reprimanded by God in particular. Moses kind of yells at him a little bit, but uh, he really doesn't get taken a task for this at all. Um, you know, outside of this little conversation, this exchange that Moses and Aaron have. So it leads one, perhaps, to the conclusion that maybe Aaron didn't really do anything that bad. Because if he was the leader of the sin of idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai, Right? I mean, that's got to merit something. I mean, at least he shouldn't have gotten dessert that night for dinner. I mean, something should have happened to him. Um, but, he, but he was more than, he was, he was not passive in all this. No, he was not. I mean, no. I mean, not only did he make the calf, but then he built an altar when he saw it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, tomorrow shall be a festival of the right. Lord. Right. Well, that makes it even stronger. So then why didn't he get punished? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. You can draw a parallel with his two sons who actually get burned, you get killed by fire at the altar. I mean, there's an interesting parallel between right later. Yes, um, it is. They don't, they, don't, they don't usually tie the sons to this. I, I wonder if, did, you know, did Aaron really do something so bad or not? And Moses up on the mountain, when God tells him about this, he's pleading for the people. And then he gets there and he's enraged. 
when he sees it. So I wonder, something happened with Moses of what he thought he would see and how he thought he would feel about it were very different than his experience of actually seeing it. I wonder if idolatry light is, you don't really think it's a deity, but it's representative. Uh And idolatry heavy is, you really think it's a deity. Right. And when Moses comes down and he sees them with lampshades on their heads, (laughs) wow, they really, they've gone over to the dark side in a way that I don't know that he anticipated. That's perhaps true. I mean, one of the things that um, I don't know if you caught in there is just that the assumption was when Moses came down the mountain, perhaps that he would see them all like worshiping, you know, this calf or something like that. And instead, when he gets down there, it was Joshua, right, who says, "I think it's the sounds of war down there." And Moses is like, "No, it's the sound of like singing and dancing. Like they're having a party down there." And there are there are a bunch of depictions, like artistic depictions, that depict the scene at Mount Sinai, not as some artists do. Which like you can imagine the masses of people around the calf, kind of in a reverent worshiping mode, but really as kind of a, what reminded me of the lampshades, a frat party, you know, where people are drunk and they're dancing and they're half naked, and it's just kind of like it's more that scene than a I'm worshiping an idol scene. It's a more of a I don't know, like the world is going to end, so let's have a big party type of scene. Um, and, and I wonder which one was more accurate. I wonder which one was more accurate. All right. Yes, Rod, and then I would like to... I mean, we don't have to, but I, if you want us to look at some text, that would be great. Go ahead, Rod. One thing that comes out of the description of the tablets themselves and how the letters were written on it. Uh-huh. You can't figure out what they're talking about. No, you can't. One thing, though, uh, tell me if you agree with me. I think one thing that we can agree upon is that God was wrote it, right? That God was literally a part of inscribing the tablets. Um, it was a very spiritual inscription. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a photocopy machine, you know? So there's something very special about the tablets which makes the, the question, I think, that Jay, I don't know if you began with it or was one of the first two, is well, what's with uh, him throwing them down? Um, that seems tough. All right, so hopefully we'll get to a number of these things. I may skip around because of the types of questions you raise so that I match the sources to the things that were of interest to you. Um, but let's say I'm going to skip one because we can't do everything. So we'll go to number two. It's Midrash Tanhuma, which is a, a Midrash of the 4th century. Um, would somebody care to read for me the English, please, kindly? Page 191. Go ahead, Larry. <coughs> And the people saw that Moshe was late. When the sixth hour passed, the 40,000 that had left Egypt together with the Israelites convened together with two Egyptian magicians, Yunos and Yumbros, that had performed all the witchcraft before Pharaoh, as it says, and they too, the magicians of Pharaoh, performed with their tricks, and they all gathered around Aharon, as it says, and the people gathered to Aharon and said that Moshe again did not come down. That day was the fortieth day at the sixth hour. Haron and Hur said to them, He is coming down now, but they paid him no heed. Some say that Satan arose and showed them the likeness of a beer on the mountain, based on what it says, for this is Moshe the man. Hur stood up right away and rebuked them, but they countered and killed him. Okay. 
So it's a fragment, a little bit of a midrash. But I would like you to use some analytical skills and try to pull out anything that you can pull out from this to determine what's the attitude of the author of this midrash towards characterizing what went on at the bottom of that mountain. Right, so first of all, right, who's, the, who's at fault? 40,000 non-Jews that came out with the Israelites. Right. So this midrash claims that the real impetus for this golden calf incident were not the Israelites themselves, but the heir of Rav, which the Torah does say there was a, a mixed multitude, as usually how the English translated it in the past, of people that came along with the Israelites because they wanted out of Egypt. Not because they were Israelites, or because necessarily they believed in God, but they wanted out of Egypt. And like, we're going with those people, right? And, and, and God permitted that. And Moses permitted that. And they came with them. So it was they who uh, did it. And in fact, they do this clever matching of verses where they say the magicians of Pharaoh were actually part of the era of Rav that came with them. And they were the ones who actually suggested or, or, or began this whole thing. All right, fine. But why did they do that, and why were the rest of the Israelites susceptible to this? What was their impetus for all of a sudden committing the sin of the golden calf, whatever that sin is so far? Moshe was late. Moshe was late. (coughs) Moshe was late. Or they perceived that Moshe was late. He said, I'm going up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And what did they say? It's just about the end of 40 days and 40 nights. And so what did they think happened to him? He died. And perhaps Satan tricked them, right? Which is an interesting thing that they have Satan in the story. Um, But whatever, if we want to make Satan a real thing or just, they had in their minds, they had, you know, their worst nightmare happened. That somehow Moshe went up there and he died. I don't know, did he have a heart attack climbing the mountain? Did he fall and hurt himself on the way down? Did God kill him? Did he die in the face of God? I don't know, right? They're thinking. But he's not coming back. It's been 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not return. And we think he's dead, right? And so now you have this, this Midrash is posing that the impetus for the sin was not the Israelites. And the reason for the sin was not because they just felt like being idolaters or they were rebelling against God, saying, we don't believe in him anymore. But they were nervous because Moses didn't come back and they thought he was dead. Yeah. And at the mountain, they already said that this is God. We can't deal with God. We need Moses to be their intercessor. Right. Right. Good, good point. Remember that? The people said, whoa, tell God to stop talking to us. He's scaring us. Right? We don't want direct. It's too much. Right? You, you, Moses, you talk to God and then you tell us what he's got to say. So... They're, they're, what you're, you're pointing out is, is that they feel like they can't really have this relationship with God unless Moses is around. And so if Moses is dead, they are in trouble, right? Was he really late, or did they, were they counting wrong? I mean, was it one day late? The, the, the tradi- we don't really know. The, the tradition posits that they are being tricked, right? They, they, they are wrong. And in fact, in this thing, Aaron and Hur, whoever Hur is, is kind of a character, but... Aaron basically tells them, he's coming down. And they're like, no, he's not. We don't believe him because Satan tricked them. The implication of the Midrash is they were wrong. 
they had calculated wrong. Um, and if they had just waited, he would have come, which we know is true, right? We know it's true. Moses was not dead. Um, and Moses <laughs> did, in fact, come back, right? So that seems to be the implication. Yeah. Well, some of the text I get out of the Midrash here suggests that you know, the others were trying to convince them of something that wasn't quite true yet because it points out that only six hours into the 40th day and right. passed. Wait a minute. That's only the quarter of the day. You know, the pollsters got it wrong somehow or another. <laughs> they weren't collecting all the facts. Right. Okay, so... It's In their day mind, day. they woke up on the morning of what they thought was the 41st day, 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 and they're like, yeah. he's not here, the world is ending, you know, type of thing. And, and you know, they went crazy um, from there. And then the rest is quote-unquote history. But you're right, like, there was no confidence in anything, and they jumped to that conclusion, and so on and so forth. Well, I think it's the same issue that we talked about last week, is that these were people who had lived in slavery and needed a leader. They right. were not used to thinking for themselves and running their own life. So in the absence of Moses, you know, a cow. Good point. And so therefore, what is the message, or if you're looking at it from a rhetorical point of view, what's the advantage of giving such an interpretation, right? The, what we call the pshat, the contextual reading, has no mention of the era of Rav, right? Or Egyptian, you know, uh, magicians playing a leadership role. In fact, the way the Torah describes it, as many of you pointed out, Aaron's really front and center. Um, so what, forget whether you think the textual evidence is there or not. We'll, we'll take our reality hats off for a second. But what's, what's, what's the advantage of reading it this way? Why would a rabbi come up with such an interpretation there? Again, we, we've fallen back on this a lot, but this is the generation that was there. They witnessed the miracles. They had revelation. It was all firsthand. And if the rabbis are trying to keep the flock in shape and keep them focused on doing mitzvot and, and staying part of the community and saying, if, if, if you're saying, if that generation couldn't do it, why should we even try? But right. here, by this interpretation, you say that generation was pure. They didn't. They weren't the. It wasn't them. They weren't at fault. They were. Your ancestors were able to, to maintain the faith. You should be able to also. Nice. Yeah, but three thousand of them. Good. Three thousand of them died. Were these? Were these Jews? The the three thousand. Some of them, yeah, because they were quote unquote convinced by this Arab Rav, and they didn't give up on it um, when. Even when Moses came down, we don't know why. Um, you know, it's always a curiosity to me. It's, it's probably one of the mysteries that I'll never figure out. Nobody really comments on it. Is well, I'm not sure that nobody. I haven't come across any good commentary on it. Which is, you know, why these people in the face of Moses coming back down from the mountain, like, why didn't they just give up? You know, why didn't they? Oh, he's back. <laughs> you know, um, they they kind of were like, once he came down, they're like, no, we're not. We're not going back to that that covenant or that deal. I don't know what exactly they were thinking, um, which is interesting. But anyway, um, anybody else? Yeah. Well, besides uh, showing the leniency toward the Israelites, it uh, lets Aaron off the hook too because mm-hmm. you know, he tried to stop them and they killed him. Sure. Yeah, Aaron was obviously going to be next if he didn't, you know, go along. Exactly. So. Uh, that's one of the points I wanted to make sure was clear. Not only does it leave the Israelites at least a little bit off the hook, it kind of like gives a little edge around it that it wasn't the Israelites whose idea this was. It was really the other people. 
Um, it also does let Aaron off the hook pretty explicitly because they throw into the mix that those who opposed this Arab Rob supported group, yeah. they were in the crosshairs. And so Aaron's life was literally threatened if he stood in the breach and tried to stop them. You may say he should have been the hero, right? But it's, Jewish law is actually pretty lenient with people. They don't require people to be heroes in that manner if your life is in danger in that, in that regard. A lot of times Jewish law, and Jewish law comes after, you know. But the way that we've traditionally looked at things is now looking back, we can kind of forgive Aaron for whatever part if, so to speak, a gun was to his head, right? But that's what this Midrash is kind of claiming when they say that this guy, Hor, who was trying to convince everybody that, hey, hey, just stop, he's right there. I don't want to hear it, you know. Okay, 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 whatever you want me to do, you know, okay, I'll make the golden calf, right? Fine, fine, fine. So, yeah. What, what, one of the qualities that was ascribed to Aaron is that he was a diplomat? It certainly was, um, and that's based partially on um, the type of weeping that was done for him, that everybody was so distraught, is that he seemed to be a very well-liked man um, who, the tradition says, uh, uh, was able to make peace between people. So I bring this midrash to you, I mean, Melton brings this midrash, but I point this one out um, to you because I think it's an, it shows, I think it's illustration of the way that the midrash sometimes tries to tell the story in a, t a certain way in order to give an angle to how we should view it. And in this case, it's not my favorite midrash. I think it's interesting. But it's not, it's hard for me to buy that Aaron, you know, was, you know, was innocent in this way. And the, the Arab Rob thing, I think, is, is interesting slash brings a smile to my face. Yeah, blame it on the non-Jews, you know, where they're, it's like, I don't know that I buy that one. But I, I think it's very interesting, and I think it shows you how Midrashim can be used to kind of soften things sometimes or to bring out certain points, um, even if they're not in the text, like in headlines. They find subtle ways to bring things in, and it changes the whole story. Comments, questions on that one? Let's go to Rashi on 194, Commentary 5. Um, moving right along. Um, Rashi sometimes comments like this, like very, you know, boom, boom, boom. Um, so they will go before us, right? They desired many deities for themselves. Meaning, when it says they will go before us, meaning that the, 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 uh, the, the gods, quote unquote, will go before us. For this man, Moshe, he interprets as Satan showed them something resembling Moshe being carried aloft in the sky. We heard that before, right? So clearly there's an old Midrashic tradition that Rashi is picking up on. It was already in the Tanhum in the 4th century. Rashi is coming along in the 8th century. He knows these Midrashim. This carries through. It's obviously a, a, a strong tradition. Otherwise, Rashi would not... He's one of our most famous and prominent Torah commentators, and he's putting that in his final draft of his commentary, right? So this is even for an 11th century guy, he's holding on to this tradition as a tradition that's worthy of using in his interpretation. Um, that Satan showed them something resembling Moshe being carried aloft in the sky. Well, I'll ask you what you think that means. Who brought us up from the land of Egypt and guided us in which way to go up. Now we need gods who will go before us. So this man, Moshe, who brought us up from the land of Egypt and guided us in which way to go up, and now we need gods who will go before us. What are you piecing together these pieces? What do you think he's trying to say? 
Is it too out of context and too broken up for you guys? Go ahead, Daryl. Do you think he's, he's talking about Moshe being an angel again and being brought back to God? Uh, Satan showed something that revealing Moshe being carried all off in the sky, and now we have nobody there to protect us from God? Great. So, um, yes, I do think that it's, if you mean by angel that he died, um, I think it's back to that tradition that Satan tricked them into thinking that they saw Moshe, like, going up to heaven, and therefore, meaning he's not coming down to us, right? And therefore, leaving them alone, right? Um, with, and I like how you put it. I wasn't thinking of it that way, but I actually like it very much, that not only are they scared that they're abandoned, but you left us alone with God? He is very scary, right? And I don't, we need somebody to be in between us, otherwise we're going to die, it, it harkens back to the fear that they felt when they were at the mountain, you know, with all the trembling and the scariness and whatever. They're not, not only are maybe they nervous that they've been abandoned completely in the middle of the wilderness with nowhere to go, um, but that they were left alone to face God by themselves was something that they actually felt they were in mortal danger from it. And I think that you got that from the idea and guided us in which way to go up, and now we need God, so we'll go before us. We need somebody else to replace Moshe. There's, a, there's definitely that, but also maybe what Renee said, how they always need a leader, mm-hmm. how they you know, need people to go before them because they are followers. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, according to Rashi, um, what was the deal with the golden calf? What did it represent to the people? Yeah. A way to uh, be able to continue their connection to God. Exactly, a safe way to be able to connect to God. That's, that's what Rashi's positing through the Midrash, which Larry alluded to before, and we talked a little bit about last week. And therefore, the sin of idolatry for Rashi is not really on the table. You don't really worship the idol. It's like, what do you call it? Hard <coughs> idolatry? Or soft, right, soft idolatry. It just represents. Or right. Idolatry, but it's not actually... Yeah, they, they didn't actually... They weren't trying to worship the calf. They were trying to use the calf as their communication device to get to God in a safe way, right? Because they lost that ability and nobody wanted to communicate with God directly. So they wanted to not be abandoned, to communicate with God, but they lost their communication device, which was Moshe. And so they did what the only other way they knew how to do it, which is build an altar and make an idol. And through that idol, to connect up to God. You could argue with that by saying, why a calf, why a golden calf, you know, and all sorts of things. Um, might have there been another thing than the Egyptian god, which is what allowed the previous commentator to say that it was the Arab rock, right? Because it was the Egyptian, that's what an Egyptian god idol would have looked like, you know, the calf. Oh, it must have been from the Arab rock, otherwise... And who told exactly what Arab rock means? Arab means mixed multitude. Oh. The arov is to mix up, right? So, so the rav is many. So the, the the many mixed up folks. There were a the bunch of other people that went out with the Israelites. So I have even a little problem here with the whole Satan thing. Yes, I imagine that. Was yeah, right. Most people would. Be Jewish. Be Jewish. Oh, well, depending on what you define Satan as, uh, Satan in English. The way that Christians have defined it for American culture is, you know, the devil, um, perhaps 
some figure in red with fiery things and whatever. That we definitely don't believe in, but what he's talking about is Satan, the book of Job, just read the book of Job. It's, it's, uh, no, if you read the book of Job, you have, it's like the adversary. You know, that there's a, and there's a, a huge belief in Judaism, by the way, that says that the Satan is really a part of God. There's nothing outside of God. So the Satan has to be part of God. But it's the it's bad, the bad inclination. Yeah, it's the evil inclination or the projection in the universe of things that are trying to hide the truth. Like the Yetzer. Or just yeah, the Yetzer Exactly. So I'm not we don't know what the rabbis of the Midrash hundred percent how they define Satan, right? Whether we're re reading medieval beliefs or modern beliefs back on them. Maybe they actually believe that Satan was another being. Um, which is, we're probably not going to get there, so I'll just say it. Which is one of the one of the commentaries' understandings of what was going on with uh, the golden calf. There's an in between soft idolatry and really hard idolatry, which is is that they believed in it's polytheism, right? They believed in in many gods. So they 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 did believe in God. They believed in Adonai. They thought he was the Zeus, right? He was the main god, right? He was the big guy. And everybody else, they were silly because they're worshiping all the the minor gods, the servant gods. But they, but they, but they posited, according to this theory, a universe in which there were other gods. Um, and so what they were doing is they were saying, "All right, well, we lost our connection with the big man. Let's let's see if we can get in touch with his assistant, right?" Let's see if we can reach out to what we feel like we can reach out. Moses could get an audience with, the, with Zeus. We can't. So we'll just talk to our local God and see if you know, he can't help us. We'll write to our congressman and see if he can't help us out with the bigger problem. So that's, that's another way of looking at it, obviously. The analogies are mine. Um, the commentary is much more articulate and formal, um, but that's that's kind of how the commentary looks at that. Is that why God is um, in Hebrew the word is Elohim? That's a plural. The Elohim thing is confusing. Um, oh, whoever put this here, thank you. Eric Rabbit. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> oh my God, it just appeared. It just came out. How did that happen? Look, no. Look, look at page 195. This will be helpful with the Elohim. Elohim looks like it's in a plural form, but is always understood in Jewish tradition when it's referring to God, to refer to God in the singular. Why is Elohim in the plural form referring to the singular? There are many interpretations, but let's just say that Elohim, or Eloha, right, which is the singular, was also a term that could be used to describe God in general. It's definitely never considered to be God's like proper name, right? It's like when I say, you know, God, or in back in the back in the day, gods, right? I could use the word Elohim. Um, and then when we decided that there's only one God and His name is Adonai, right? The term Elohim, which used to mean many gods, is now the general name to mean the one. So even though it's in Elohim, we've reprismed, right? We've recaptured that name Elohim, which used to mean many gods. But we're saying that that common term now just means one god, Adonai. And one, one more thing, and then right. And the kind of drash on that is, is that God is 
the real God, the one God, the true God, is a collection, right, of all the powers in the universe. Because whatever people worshiping, the sun, the moon, the this and the that, right? And God, Adonai, encompasses all of the Elohim, right? It, it's not that people were worshiping something totally disconnected from God when they were worshiping the sun. They were just only worshiping part, right? So now Elohim collects all those parts and puts it in, in one, yeah. But then we're going to go to this chart first. Right at the beginning of Breshis, when God is creating uh, the world in seven days, God mm -hmm. says, let us do something. Let us create. Let us make man. Just for human beings, yeah. Uh, who else is there? You know? Right. Well, the Midrashim are... That's a whole other question. So there's a let us line when it says, let us make man. And the Midrash goes crazy on that. Some of it... As he's consulting the angels, some of it is he's consulting himself because he's conflicted about whether he should make human beings. It's very interesting. I actually just studied it with a different group this morning. But that's for another time, folks. Um, look at page 195. Um, Elohim could mean God, big G, God, little g, or gods. And sometimes Elohim means judge, human being. So, Breshit, right? They give you an example. When God began to create heaven and earth, Breshit bar Elohim and Hashemayim v'daretz. It's God. Big G. Shmotz. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of refined. That's God. Big G. But it also in Shmot in chapter 22, they point out that Elohim is clearly not God. It's clearly coming before the judges, Right? It's definitely not before God. So that's why Elohim is a root word that definitely is generic, right, as opposed to proper. Um, and it sometimes refers to leaders, right, human leaders. And that's why some people interpret the Elohim in this verse to mean as a replacement for Moses, right? They wanted Elohim. They didn't really want idols, right? They weren't worshiping idols. They wanted leadership. They wanted intermediary in between them and God. That's really what they were looking for. Um, and in that, again, asking the question, why is that an important distinction? Why would you give that interpretation as opposed to just saying, hey, they're worshiping an idol. Isn't that what they were doing? Uh, why, why be sophisticated in this way? Why? What, what advantage or what's the point of saying that the Israelites were really looking for an intercessor as opposed to actually worshiping the calf? That they didn't break the commandment. That they didn't break the commandment. And you know what helps answer? Isn't the underlying, was it Larry? I don't remember who said it. Somebody said something like, this is the generation that saw, that yeah, this is the generation that saw all the miracles. It's like, how is it possible that they saw that and then they, on the foot of the mountain, violated that commandment? This kind of gives that answer. They weren't trying to violate the commandment. They were actually trying very much to get into contact with that God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they, they, their, their phone broke, and uh, they, they needed a new one. So I don't know if you like that, but that's what's there. But at the end of the day, they made a very yep. thing that God forbade. It's so true, and that's why God gets angry. That's why Moses has to come down. That's why Moses throws down the tablets. And we'll have to get into that next. But um, he was upset. That's why he tells them to stop. And when they don't, he intercedes, even if we don't like the extreme uh, that he has to go to to do it. I mean, so yes, it clearly was bad. 
Um, the, the theological problem and perhaps the, I don't know if call it judicial problem, but the violation of the commandment is, is that if they really did violate the command, that commandment right there, in reality, other than the people who continued to revolt, the people who were like, okay, okay, Moses is back, we're done, we're done, we're done, did they get really punished in any way? Are there any consequences? They have to drink the water with the ashes of the golden cow. Right. But other than that. None of them made it to the land. So, but that, that may be true. But the Torah does not identify the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf, as the reason for that. The Torah identifies that to the problems they had with the 12 spies or scouts and how they responded to the reports of the scouts. Um, so, yes, it's true, but I don't know that that, I, w I would say there's not a lot of evidence that this was the reason. I would say you'd be tough to really find a really direct consequence that the people did for what, the people had for what they did. Um, and perhaps that might lead you down to the belief that God didn't see them as actually violating that second commandment. I don't know. Can you give me a sense of your understanding of how to translate Lo Elohim Acherim Al Panai, which I have seen variously translated as you shall have no other gods before me, as mm -hmm. more important than me. Mm -hmm. Or here it says, besides me, meaning I'm the only one. Was there a period where some sort of polytheistic belief persisted? wasn't necessarily sanctioned, but persisted to the point where this would not have been idolatry. Yeah, that was what I, one of the things that I was saying before, which is, is that they actually did believe that there were other gods. Right. So when it says Al-Panai, mm -hmm. what does Al-Panai mean? Well, I mean, you're right that there are different ways to translate it. I mean, if you literally translate it, Al means on or in front of. Um, Panai means my face or my, my presence. So there's, that's why a lot of people say there's no other gods before me, like literally before me, meaning there aren't any other gods. It's a poetic way of saying there is no such thing as any other gods. Like, or on the foremost. Or on the foremost, right. That's another way of putting it. If the, there are definitely scholars who believe that we Jews became monotheists in stages. That when we first came out of Egypt and whatever, we were not true monotheists. We believed in Adonai. We believed Adonai was the big God, right? We believed that the big God was more important and had a universal stretch, right? God, unlike the other gods, our God wasn't confined to one place. Our God could leave Eretz Israel and have power in the land of Egypt and even defeat all the Egyptian gods. Right, so he was like the big, big God, and for whatever reason, the rest of the world didn't recognize God, and and that was a problem for them, and good for us that we discovered Adonai, but that we weren't truly, fully convinced yet that there were literally no other gods, um, that there might have been other gods, and so there are scholars who make that claim, and they'll pull out quotes or re, re uh, translate, you know certain quotes to say, hey, this is evidence that that's the case. And I don't even, you know, I'm not even interested in denying or supporting that. I mean, that may or may not be the case, that that's what people thought. It's very logical to me that certainly the people weren't totally, they didn't go from idolatry and polytheistic to boom, 
monotheistic, that would have been a pretty hard transition, I think, for them to totally make. Um, but sometimes we like just all of a sudden have a revelation and see the light, and we used to think this way, and now we're in a totally different headspace. Um, it can happen, um, but I would imagine that on the level of the people, some of them still had their doubts. And we know that that's the case because when they went to the land of Israel, right, and they finally settled in, what was half the problem during the whole, um, the, the book of Kings and Shmuel and all that stuff? Idolatry is a huge problem, right? I keep going back to it. So the main culture still was idolatrous, and so was it just to get ahead? Was it just social pressure? Or did they really believe in polytheism is a, is a question, but I would imagine at least some of them really actually still believe that there were other gods. Yeah, you know, the, the exception to the argument that this was either a minority that inspired this or a group of non-Jews or wasn't truly a sin but the golden calf was a replacement for Moses to try to reach out to God and so forth is Moses' reaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm be a little cynical here. No matter how we spin it or how others have spun the sequence of events to explain it, revisionist or otherwise, Moses' reaction is so bold and so clear that um, there might be a lot of blame to go around. We weren't there, obviously. But he clearly blames Aaron and clearly blames the multitude mm -hmm. uh, to, to a certain extent. And when, when I hear the other exceptions or other explanations, how do they resolve Moses' reaction? It's a really good point. To that. Go ahead. Speculating. But was Moses upset by the golden calf or by the unruly behavior? Because, because, unruly behavior. Unruly behavior. Because when Moses was on the mountain and heard of this, he says, let's not overreact here, let's not exterminate the people, what will the rest of the world say? You made a promise, etc. And he's not upset until he goes down and sees it. So he already had a concept of a golden calf that didn't enrage him. Mm -hmm. But when he saw the people, he got enraged. So maybe he wasn't enraged by the golden calf as much as he was by the spring break <laughs> Yeah, you're right. The, the, the evidence for that is A, what you said, that God told him already that that's what they were doing. B, uh, the verse says, as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, right? It's like both things. He became enraged. Um, you know, he definitely grounds up the calf and so on and so forth, so he doesn't like that at all. Um, and then he says, what did you do that you brought this great sin? And he said, you know, all this people is bent on evil. So blame, Aaron blames it on the people, and then it popped out. Or whatever, and then Moses, verse twenty-five. Moses saw that the people were out of control, right? Since Aaron had let them get out of control, so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them. So, this is to your point that he was particularly still upset about them being out of control. Now the calf has kind of dropped out of it, um, so maybe that, you know, was evidence that the calf wasn't the only thing or even the main thing that he was upset, particularly upset about. So they, but he's definitely out. blaming Aaron. You're, you're right. Didn't they go out and Moses several times? <sighs> yes. So I can't blame his brother for that. 
Well, it's a good point. I, I would perhaps distinguish, like, what was the term Bruce used? The spring break atmosphere that's here or the, you know, um, fraternity party atmosphere that's here is a little bit different than the type of out-of-control that would be for. However, I mean, the Korach rebellion was pretty intense. I mean, um, but I would say that Moses was able to insert himself there and create a ordered way to end that rebellion, right? It's not like it was out of control. There was a direct play at his power. Moses stepped in, parlayed with them, so everything was kind of, it was challenging, but calm. Like, nobody was dying. They weren't having an orgy, you know, whatever. It was, it was... There was right, an orgy right after that. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and, um, I don't remember that part. Um, what's the Pinchas took, um, you know... Um, you know, started getting, you know, killing people in revenge. Well, uh, I would separate between the two stories, and I'm not sure that it's quite an orgy um, that was going on, but um, fine. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Right. Um, all right. So I'm a little, yes. I'm a little unsettled here. What's the, what's the point of this story? I mean, if it's, if, if it's, you know, to be glib, if it's, I left town for the weekend and my kids had a party and, you know, there was a big mess and so forth, but, you know, we talked about it and they were contrite and we moved on and they weren't really trying to hurt me, you know, et cetera. Or, or is there a, you know, how does it fit if we take that approach or if we don't take that approach, how does this fit more largely? I have an answer. Does anybody else have an answer for Jay? What do you think the point of the story is? I have an answer. Oh, great. <laughs> the only one I can come up with. Great. Is that I'll just use another pretzel. If it's, if it's so easy for this group, I think as Larry said, within 40 days of Sinai and thunder and lightning and so forth and so on, I mean, the one generation that as a nation witness God, however God presented himself at that time. And yet so close, they're slipping into whether we call it sin or idolatry, something bad. Mm -hmm. Something good is not happening. Correct. In short proximity, how much easier is it for us and every generation that follows that's that much further away from Sinai to do the same? Yes. And then comes the part that we haven't... But I don't know if you have more to say. Go and ahead. that there's a tremendous challenge. I mean, that is very ambiguous. <clears throat> that we have to work really hard and be very conscious of everything around us, everything we do, etc. Otherwise, it's so easy to slip into this chaos, so to speak. Great. It's happened many times in history, so to speak. To I think I, that resonates with me. Um, and the piece that I'll add to it, excuse me, the piece that I'll add to it is, which some of you know, and some of you know, but you didn't think about, some of you might not know, is that what happens after the golden calf? What's the next part of the Torah to spend its time on? The building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And people say, this is the... Two things are happening with the Mishkan. Number one is... God slash the people realize that a relationship with God based on 
miracles and kind of these crazy tumultuous events is just unsustainable. It's destabilizing. It doesn't work for people. Um, and that they needed to create a, literally a space for God in like their routine, in the daily basis, holidays that have a cycle, um, rituals that relate to daily things like personal sin and personal thanksgiving and um, tzedakah, things that we do. Um, and therefore, their experience with Judaism, there was no Judaism, but with the Israelite religion at the time, went from this very direct God to Moses to the people in this miraculous way to uh, a religion more like what we experience religion. And that was better. Um, that worked a lot better. Now, not that they didn't have problems, um, but most of the problems that they had were not against God, if you will recall. Um, they may have had lacked a little bit of faith, you know, they didn't want to go in because they were afraid they were going to get killed in Israel. Um, but they weren't really a direct revolt against God um, or direct violation of God's commandments. They were more of, they're complaining about this, complaining about that. They were upset at Moses as a leader. You know, those are the types of things that they mostly had problems with in the wilderness. And the next generation really took to kind of the rituals and holidays and so on and so forth of our religion. And the other thing that um, the commentators say is that building the Mishkan was their form of tshuva. It was their way of saying, God, we're sorry. And we're going to do something to actively build our relationship again. We're literally going to build it. And I don't know if you recall, when they did the fundraising campaign for the Mishkan, everybody gave and they gave so much that like Moses had to tell people to stop. And it's for those... I know it's, uh, it's funny. Tourist sense of humor. Don't pull your stuff. But before you laugh, too late. So after you laugh, listen to this. Think about the parallel or the comparison between donating to the golden calf and then donating to the Mishkan. The first one was not a good thing, and the second one is the same action, but it was for something. It was so overwhelming and so powerful and so community-building. The rabbis see this as a way of atoning for their sin and moving forward. So I think that's definitely part of it. I'm just going to throw in one other thing, and I do want to get to, because I want to address either or, or both. Um, Moses is throwing down the tablets, and how are we going to blame Aaron or not blame Aaron? But um, how Moses defended us to God, I think that's another lesson. You know, it's something to be gleaned from the from this story about uh, Moses standing up for the people and saying, if you're the kind of God who's going to abandon us, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. And God being totally fine with that attitude. He didn't fire Moses or push him off the mountain, right? He allowed him to speak to him that way and said, you're right. Um, and I think that that message is pretty strong and fits in with a lot of the messages of the Haftarot, particularly afterwards, that God, we may violate the covenant a lot, and God may be quote-unquote or not quote-unquote angry with us, uh, but God isn't going to abandon us. Uh, that's not the type of God that God is. And whether it was a test for Moses or Moses needed to remind God of who he was, you know, I don't know. You write the story the way that you want to, but that was interesting, at least for me. Yeah? I just, um, not to harp on the... Uh 
the rave that was going on, but uh, I just wanted to point out that uh, growing up, uh, for some reason, I had always uh, subconsciously, or I don't know if I was taught this or we just on discussion, but I always equated this scene that was happening uh, before the Golden Calf uh, and sort of equated that with what was happening in, uh, during the Sodom and Gomorrah time. It was the same sort of uh, fervent, sort of cultish, uh, turning away from God type behavior. And I also equated that with what was happening before the flood. And it, uh, whether that's true or not, I always felt, I mean, it's funny to say just God doesn't like a rave, but uh, it seems like it was sort of, every time we got to this point of no return, uh, where it was just out of control craziness, that's when you know the crap really happened. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's actually if these events are tied in anywhere. Uh, if anyone's ever discussed that, or if they are all completely different. Uh, obviously, they came from different scenarios and different uh, backgrounds. But uh, for some reason, well, there is there's definitely a pattern in it. In it I thought it, there was a pattern. Yeah, there's definitely a pattern, and there's a philosophy that it embeds, like. I'm not going to address that in a comprehensive way, but I'll just say this. If you look at the um, eschatological theories, meaning like end of days theories in Judaism, you know, the Mashiach coming, which is hopefully a good thing, right? Um, one of them, one of the Al, al um, Chabad will be happy that I'm saying this. I'll, I'll call it the Chabad theory. It's not the Chabad theory. They're just the most popular and prominent modern uh, subscribers to this. The more we do the mitzvot, right? If I can get one person to do one more mitzvah, it might tip the scale and Mashiach will come, right? Like if one more Jew puts on tefillin, one more Jew sits in the sukkah, that might show God we're, we're I don't know if it's a math problem, like 51% of us are doing the covenant, right? You know, or whatever it is, or showing God that we're trying, right? And then God will come and meet us the other halfway or more than halfway and, and bring the Mashiach. It's the positive view, Right? I'm not far from it, maybe not as literal as Chabad, but it's a positive view. If we, if we try to reach God, right? if we make this world a better place, if we try to be better Jews, the more we reach out to God, then the more God will reach back and eventually the Mashiach will come. Right? Then there's the other side. The other side is when things get really bad, that's when God's going to come and save the day. Right? And, and that's actually when we get closer to God is when really things get horrible. Um, and when we're on the verge, that's when God comes and we really feel God's presence and he saves the day. Um, that's a tough one because, you know, what are, you, are we going to try to make things bad? Or I, I don't know, well, how, do we, how do we deal with that theory is a tough one. Um, when things get really bad, it's not happening. But that's the thing. So those type of theories are born of it's already really bad and then thinking like God's, it, it makes us feel like, okay, well now God's going to come, Right. Um, anyway, I don't know, I didn't really answer your question. So, um, page 196, briefly, I just want to show you something. This is 196. Ramban, Nachmanides, he says, Since scripture indicates only that they wanted a leader in place of Moses, but not God's, rather this verse is the key to understand the incident of the golden calf and the thought of those who made it. For it is known that the Israelites did not think that Moses was a god, and that he did for them the signs and wonders through his own power. So they know that he did not do that. So what sense is there in saying, since Moses is gone, we'll make ourselves gods? Moreover, they clearly say, make us Elohim who shall go before us, and not a deity who should give them life in this world. Instead, they wanted another Moses, saying, Moses, the man who showed us the way from Egypt. So what he's saying is, the line that says, 
make us Elohim who shall go before us. And then it says, Moses, the man who showed us the way from Egypt. It's like a definition of what Elohim is. So what they wanted was Elohim, meaning like Moses, the person who showed us the way. So they're either literally praying for Moses to come back down off the mountain, right? Like that's what they're actually trying to do with this golden calf thing. They're literally praying that Moses comes back down or a replacement for Moses. You know, one of the two. It's a long one, so I I just wanted to show you that I thought it was interesting. Um, If you now move to 202, commentary number 10, another one from Tanhuma. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and then I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on commentary 11 before we leave, Go down, right? That's when God says to Moses, go down. The rabbis say that at that point, Moshe was distanced distanced by the heavenly court, meaning he was not just on the top of the mountain. He was like communing with heavenly court. He was really far away. I don't know, in literal, spatial, or spiritual. Um, Immediately, Moshe stood before God because he's in the heavenly court. So he just walks up to the throne, you know, and says, my master, what did I do wrong? Right? Because um, he, he's with heavenly court. He's happy. And then God says, get out of here. Go back down. What, what, what did I do? What did I do? Why are you kicking me out? So God says, your people have destroyed. And Moshe, I love this because this is like the angry Moshe. <laughs> but to God, he retorted. Are they my people? Right? Aren't they your people and your heritage? He quotes God. Right, exactly. What your son is it? And he quotes God to God's self. Are they not, quote-unquote, your people and your heritage that you redeemed with your strength? Meaning, aren't you the one who said you are my people and you redeemed us from the land of Egypt? Isn't that you? He said, in what way did they sin? They exchanged their honor with the form of an ox, right? And this is from Tehillim, it's from the Psalms. They're, they're taking, in other words, see, they're worshiping a cow, you know, a cow down there. Master of the world, and what are you jealous of? An ox? Is he then your assistant? You blow the wind and he brings down the rain. You shine the sun and he the moon. You grow trees and he sprouts vegetation. He's nothing. He eats grass and he's designated for the slaughter. Why is your, your anger flaring, God? What, is, what, is, what does the Midrash make Moses say to God? What are you so upset about? What, like, who cares if they're worshiping a cow? You know, what's the cow going to do? Right about it. So we'll go clear things up. You know, like, what's the big deal? Are you so threatened by the calf? Like, what's the big deal? And the calf, he's a symbol of a guy who eats grass and gets slaughtered for dinner. Right? This is what you're worried. Is he, is he even, he's saying, is he even your assistant? What, your partners? You're worried that this is the, part, the other partners taking over the firm, you know, from you? Come on, relax. You know, it's a bunch of misguided folks. They're scared down there. They're worshiping a cow. So what? We'll figure it out. You want to get angry about this? Right. Yeah. So go ahead. I mean that the anger that he exhibits is not necessarily his personal anger, but the direction that he was given. I think I know what you're saying, and I think I like it. Can you can you say it in more words? Can you say it again in more words? So he's not necessarily angry at the people. Who's he, 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 instead of Moses? Moses is not angry at. He's not angry. He's defending them. He's saying it's no big deal. If you follow this midrash, but God says, "What are you talking about? I'm angry. This is not the way it's supposed to be." Go down and make a scene. Great. So, yes, I think that's kind of what's happening. The order's a little reversed here. In other words, God says, first go down, and then Moses said, come on, man, you know, 
What are you so What are you so jazzed about? Now, what's interesting though is back to Jay and Bruce made a similar point. When he does go down, though, he doesn't have this laissez-faire attitude, right? He gets angry and he throws down the tablets and all the other things. He almost shares God's anger. I don't know if this is to your point that God said, look, when you go down there, you're going to have to be angry. I'm angry. Be angry. Um, There's actually a midrash, which is not in here, which says that Moshe gives a good example of of how to be a good diplomat and how to communicate properly. To God, he defends the Jews, right? The Israelites. When he goes down there... He represents God, right? So, you know, he, to God, he's like, hey, just chill out over here, right? Everything's going to be fine. Then he goes down there and says, you guys better shape up. You're, make, you're making the big guy mad, right? So he, he plays both sides of it so that they each see the other side and then all, all the parties can come together in the end, yeah. Another reading is, you know, when he's throwing down the, the tablets, it's not really because he's angry. It does it as a device to take control of, of this chaos that's going on. Right. He needs to get their attention. Right, that certainly does it. If I can use that as my uh, segue, I would like to look at Commentary 11, because a couple of you mentioned this idea of Moshe throwing down the tablets. Um, here is another set of Midrashim, um, which is a late, late Midrashic work, 9th ninth, ninth century. Uh, Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, would somebody read in English? Give me a break. Anyone? Bueller? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Moses took the tablets and was on his way down, and the writing was carrying itself and Moshe with it. Okay, did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Don't just so the writing was carrying Moshe, was carrying itself, the tablets and the and Moshe with it. Why? Why does it have to say that? Doesn't have to say. Why does it say that? God's in control of what's happening. So maybe God's in control, but there's a physical problem. The weight of it. Yeah, it's like well, Moses is carrying these two big tablets down the mountain by himself. I mean. How does he do that? So there's two sides. There's a metaphor and there's the actual, right? So this helps explain both. I mean, maybe, if you buy it, right? But here here he's the... the, 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 Yeah, the the tablets on this uh, were carrying itself and Moses. Fine. When it, however, saw the symbols, dances, and the calf. calf, the writing escaped and flew off the tablets, and they became heavy in Moshe's hands. And Moshe was not able to carry himself and the tablets, and he cast them from his hands. And they were shattered, as it is said, he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Okay. What's going on here? Do you understand the point of this, Midrash, or do you have a theory? Well, it's telling you that first the tablets were carrying, but when they saw, I mean, the writing of the tablets, when they saw what was going on, they got so angry, they fled off and then left Moses hanging with the... uh, Heavy and boom, he couldn't carry them longer. And he desanctified them. They were, like he did. They were desanctified by the writing, leaving the book. Nothing broke. There was nothing. The writing was blind. The tablets were stone. Do the equivalent of throw a safer Torah at them. Right. He threw parchment at them. Right. Exactly. So there's a few things this solves um, for us. One of them is this: How could he possibly throw down the tablets of God? I mean. God wrote them. I mean, who was he to just chuck them on the ground? So one theory could be he kind of had permission, right, because God was angry, and he was supposed to be angry, and then there's a dramatic effect of shattering the commandments in front of them, like, you really messed up, look what I did, um, and it symbolized that. That's one way of reading it, and it's a good way of reading it. But another way of reading it is those tablets no longer had sanctity because the people were violating the laws on them. 
So whether you read it metaphorically like I just did, or literally that the tablets, the writing saw what was going on and flew away, and it meant that the tablets, they weren't worth anything anymore. They weren't really the covenant anymore. They were just two pieces of stone. The actions of the people rendered them meaningless. And so Moses didn't throw down sacred words of God. He threw down a piece of parchment that now was meaningless. It was like, I might as well rip this thing up. I mean, you guys are, look at what you're doing. Um, so and they personify the tablets themselves seeing it, right? And the, and the writing deciding, I'm out of here, right? And it was the writing on the tablets. God's, God's uh, sacred presence in the tablets that made them special and that could carry Moshe down the mountain. But once, once that was disconnected, they were just pieces of stone and they practically fell out of his hands because he couldn't, he couldn't carry them anymore. Um, and so he had to kind of let them go. I think to cast them down, even though it sounds a little bit more active, I think the point is, is that he couldn't carry them anymore. He had to like, let them drop. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't have you know, been able to sustain himself. And then they used that verse that he did this when? When did he throw down the tablets? At the foot of the mountain. Oh, right. When he saw. Right? That's when it the, happened. The people yeah. wouldn't have known what, what he had with him anyway, right? Yeah, it's possible that they might not have understood what he was carrying. Although, he did go up there saying that he was going to go get the rest of the Torah. And yeah. he was coming down with some pretty interesting yeah. things. I think they would have put it one and one together. And that represented at least the Torah. And there was ancient... In the ancient world, writing law on stone was common. I mean, so I think they would have figured out that that's I, I kind of put the two Midrashim together on this very point. You know, they had this argument up there, and, and they basically had the sting operation. You know, and God and Moses kind of agrees. Let's just go down and make this work out. And there it is. Yeah. Go ahead. If these Midrashims are true, maybe I'm incorrect. But I thought I learned 60 years ago that one of the reasons why they hated that Moshe didn't go into promised land was we threw down these tablets. And if they weren't holy, why would that be such a significant uh, problem? Well, the text doesn't, doesn't the text no, doesn't yeah, the, the, that's because the, that's what I'm asking. The, we, we, we were, <laughs> the, the bitter waters. That yeah, right. Hit, yeah, about. hitting that. that right. But I thought also I learned, maybe I'm wrong, well, I don't. I don't think that's what. The, I don't think that's what the text says. I mean, right. I, I would agree with Larry. Um, Although, I mean, just going back to the, the the text of this Torah portion, and there's two sentences talking about the importance of, of you know, these tablets were God's work, and and how um, you know they, they, the tablets were inscribed with both their services. They were inscribed on the one side and on the other. I mean, there's a huge amount of emphasis that's written about the importance of these tablets. So. In some ways, I mean, you, you have to give some sort of justification to how Moses wouldn't just desecrate the tablets, you know. Right. And I, and I think, just to remind ourselves, so Rod's explanation is also a good one, right? That um, basically, and, and kind of goes along with what Ben was saying, he's mirroring God's anger, and he almost had permission to do it. And this was the way of getting their attention and saying, you know what you did? You just broke that covenant we just made. I might as well smash these things. It's like almost, this was an educational rhetoric move to get their attention and to show them how serious this was. The text continues beyond this, that, that the, the emphasis is made that when we do get the tablets back, they're not God's work anymore. It's not God's right. 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 That's right. And we're not, we don't get the benefit of whatever that word back. Yes. Right. It's changed. Right. Um, 
in my last minute, or probably I'm over time, but I was a little late. So you're welcome to leave if you feel like you need to. I just thought maybe for two minutes I would go to commentary 13, number 204, to at least briefly address this idea of the post, the 3,000 people that died. Um, and I just think it's at least an interesting, I mean, I would have never read this source because it's not a traditional source. It's Rabbi David Fass of a Reformed Temple, Rodaf Shalom in New York. I'd have never met David Fass. Um, I don't know how old he is or anything, um, but this is what he wrote. Um, when Moses is on top of the mountain, he calmly convinced God not to punish the people. That's what we all noticed. He's like, God, chill out, right? When he was part of the way down, he reassured Joshua too, right? But mostly himself, that all that he heard was singing. When Moses descended and confronted the situation directly, his response was entirely different. That's what Bruce was saying. Gone was his calm and detachment. Moses did not seem primarily concerned with God's prerogatives here. That's his opinion now. He's saying he's now lost a little bit of like what God wanted. He's reacting emotionally himself. But rather with his own, he responded to the sight of the calf as if he was the one who was attacked. So dire was the threat in Moses' eyes as proven by his response that even the destruction of the calf was not enough. He continued to see the people um, after they had consumed the ground-up idol as out of control, a menace to any who might oppose them, and sent avenging Levites, faithful members of his own tribe, among the people to execute some 3,000 rebels. Although enough self-control had by then returned that Moses attributed the Levites' actions to God, it is understood that he was acting there on his own initiative rather than at the divine behest. By the way, that's his opinion, but his opinion is based on the fact that God never once said, you know, go rally the Levites and punish people or kill people. You know, that was never in the discussion, so he's saying... I think Moses is acting on his own. Um, and he's, but this is, this is, then he goes to the question then that we have, did Moses overreact? He says probably not. Despite everything he just said, probably not. Why? Although it may be that he ordered the execution of some 3,000 souls purely out of his own irrational fears, this is highly unlikely. He doesn't say why. He just assumes, come on, this is Moses, right? probably didn't just decide to execute 3,000 people for a rational reason. Um, it's far more probable that Moses responded as he did because of a very real menace to his leadership in his life. His claim is, therefore, that you read the situation as he came down into chaos. He tried to rally everybody to him. The people who didn't rally weren't just people who just wanted to continue to party and were innocently reveling and whatever, or innocently worshipping a calf that didn't really matter, that those people, when he rallied everybody to him and they said no, they were like, no, and they brought their pitchforks, right? Like, we're not, we're not going with you anymore. This is the end of, of your time, Mr. Moshe, right? We're, we're done with you. Um, and this was really a civil rebellion, right? It's a, not a civil war, but this was a rebellion of some kind, and they didn't back down. Um, and so there was really a menace to the people and literally perhaps to Moses himself that they wanted to destroy the leadership, kill Moses, kill Aaron, and end this whole enterprise. And that's his take on it. Again, not a traditional source, uh, a rabbi's sermon, um, something to think about. So I hope you got something out of today. I know. I'm